Today, we're going to hear some stories and reflect on what is possible. My guest has been involved with bringing incarcerated fathers and their children together through education, specifically reading. And she will share those inspiring stories with us and give us some really actionable steps that any dad can do right now to connect with their children and to influence the next generation for the better. So don't go away. Welcome to the Fatherhood Challenge, a movement to awaken and inspire fathers everywhere to take great pride in their role and to challenge society to understand how important fathers are to the stability and culture of their family's environment. Now, here's your host, Jonathan Guerrero. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest is Deborah McNellis. Deborah is the author of The First 60 Days and the Neuronurturing Interaction Package series. She is also the founder of Brain Insights and an international speaker, initiator of the First 60 Days movement, and uniter of all those who are making a difference. She has been on the Fatherhood Challenge before to talk about brain development and nurturing in babies and how fathers play a critical role in this process. Now she is back with us again to share some inspiring stories and give us more tips on what we can do to influence our children and connect closer with them. Thank you so much for being on the Fatherhood Challenge again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. How did you get involved with working with incarcerated fathers and their kids? Well, I was a coordinator of a a program called Family Literacy, and Family Literacy provided adult basic education for adults that needed to complete their high school diploma. So we were providing uh, reading, writing, um, and reading, writing, and math skills uh, for those adults. And it was a family literacy program. So that also included that we had an early childhood uh, center right on site. So the parents were bringing their children with them for an early learning experience and role modeling to their children that education is something that's important. I go to school, mommy goes to school or daddy goes to school. And then also combined in that program was what was called, officially was called parent education. I I changed the name for our program and called it family development. And, uh, and then so the parents were learning about some practices that were positive for, for their children and how they could influence them positively. And then a fourth component was parent and child interaction time. So at the end of the session, the, the, after the parents were working on their education, they would go into the classroom at the end of the day before they took their children home and there would be a parent and child interaction activity for them to do together. That's absolutely powerful. Did it really help with the bonding process? It definitely did. It the the, the it, there were so many wonderful stories of um of interactions and differences in perspective for those those parents. It was remarkable. And uh, I, I can tell you one, one story that I just loved. At the beginning of the program, this was with a mom. Uh, she, the, the parent educator, was, had the parents draw a picture reflecting their, their family and where their family was at. Oh, and this wow. mom, yeah, and this mom drew a picture of their house 
and all she and the children looking out the windows of the house and the house was on fire. Oh my. It was symbolic. It wasn't the house actually, you know, that Mm -hmm. they had lived in a burning house. It was symbolic of where they, she felt they were at. And at the end of the program, the parent educator had her, uh, well, all the parents draw a, a picture at the end of the program. And this particular mom drew a picture of a house again with the family all outside of the house with a, with a hose putting out the fires. Oh my goodness. Isn't that impactful? So what was the catalyst of that experience? Was it, was it education that was that the fire hose? Yeah, I, I think it was all of the education, you know, that, that she felt more confident in, in her abilities now. She had the reading, writing, and math skills, had achieved her, her high school diploma. She, um, and, and then the parenting that she learned and the understanding of what her children needed. And it was, it was the combination of all of that. Are these programs still running? And if they aren't, what is the number one obstacle keeping them from continuing? Yeah, they were more prevalent at that time. That was, that was in the, in the nineties when I was coordinating those programs, that, that program, um, and there were numerous programs throughout the country, and it was federally funded at that time with a program called Even Start, which was in collaboration with Head Start programs. Um, but the funding, the the Department of Education cut that funding. So um, there are a few of these programs continuing if they are able, they were able to get funding in from some other f- source. So money really is the number one obstacle that makes <laughs> or breaks these programs in the yeah, long run. It is. It is. It was designed to be a very collaborative program that the, that the community community would get uh, involved in, in supporting it for the continuation. Um, so, to, to, to make it community-based is really the, the optimal way of doing it so that you're getting, say there's a parenting program within your community, um, can they contribute a, a, a parent educator to this program? Um, if there's a child care center, can they expand to, um, to offer this programming for, for, the, early, for the children? Um, it just would be a branch of their, um, their existing child care services. So those kinds of things. Um, a community college could provide the adult basic education um, services so, or a, a literacy program in the community. So it, it can be pieced together like that. And that's exactly how it was designed so that the, the federal funding was the initial startup money to to pull those pieces together and then hopefully <laughs> in successful um, examples that they were able to get the those pieces funded through the community. What exactly happens to a child or even a baby's brain when a father reads to them? Mm, a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Ideally, um, it's with the, the the, the father in person with the child, but I know, I know we were, wanted to talk about um, the, the incarcerated parent program that I created as well. But the ideal is the, the 
father that is reading a book with their child in person, that child is usually being held on a lap and having that that physical connection, that touch that is essential for optimal brain growth and development. Um, They're getting visual stimulation by looking at the pictures in the book, and they're, they're hearing vocabulary. They're hearing words being used. And some people don't always realize it, but to, for a baby to learn language, they have to hear language. <laughs> they have to hear a lot of language. And um, there's research that was initially done that showed uh, the amount of language was a, a huge factor. And, a, and it was a comparison of um, social economic levels, but uh, that some children in lower socioeconomic situations were not hearing as many words as um, children in higher levels, economic levels. But since then, there's been research that shows it really matters how broad the, the uh, vocabulary is. And so when a child is being read to, uh, that's an opportunity for them to hear words that maybe they wouldn't hear in just regular everyday life. Like, get down from there and eat your dinner and it's time for bed. But Mm -hmm. this is going to include, um, if you're reading nursery rhymes, for example, there's going to be words that you wouldn't use in everyday life. And it's going to be exposing children to that. So all of those experiences, that that touch, that, that visual stimulation, and that auditory stimulation are all physically creating connections in the brain. See, this is exactly why I wanted to have you on the Fatherhood Challenge again. You're such an expert on this stuff. So <laughs> what you're trying to tell me is that the sensory component is key to the maximum ability to be able to learn and process and retain information even from a very, very early age, from the very beginning, which includes the three, the physical touch, the auditory, and the visual all together at the exact same time. Is that what you're getting at? Yes. Yes. All of them, all of them are important separately, but that combination, wow, that's really rich. What are some other ways that dads can help enhance the education of their kids at an early age? I have this model, and I can't remember if we talked about it on the last show. Um, it's, I, I trademarked the term neuro-nurturing to try to convey um, that brain development isn't only about making your child smart. Brain development is, uh, is about developing all of who a child is, all aspects. And um, So I thought, well, maybe we need another term to talk about it instead of just saying brain development. And so I came up with the term neuro-nurturing to better convey that. And I then created something that I call the neuro-nurturing model. And I broke that model down into four, um, four topic areas that need to be included in everyday life. Um, for optimal development. And those four areas are meeting the physical needs of a child, providing security, providing nurturing, and lots of play. So I'm going into that because all of that is needed. But a, a 
factor that dads really contribute to a lot. I mean, all of those, like I said, all of those are critically important um, and and overlap with each other. Um, But a a really important component of the father-child relationship is play. Dads love to play with their kids generally. I'm making a general statement, but typically dads love to play with their kids and the kids love their dad playing with them. And it's needed. It's so needed. It's how the brain learns. When you think about um, what what does a child want to do? All they want to do is All play. All they want to do is play. Exactly. They want to throw and squish and pound and jump and skip and run and sing and dance and you know it's all it's what their brain needs so they're doing the reason they all they want to do is play is because that's what their brain needs that's how their brain develops you know it's fascinating I, one of the things i really enjoy doing is is teaching music i teach uh, piano mm-hmm. and i and i've also taught the cello and i have had parents come to me with 5 year olds and the expectation is that five-year-old is going to sit on a bench and I'm supposed to put music in front of them and teach them how to read music and then teach them how to play songs out of a book. And I have to explain to these parents that this is not how this works. <laughs> and, that, and, and that in fact, that child is more intelligent than me at the age of five as far as what that child needs to learn. And so my job is, is to be observant, to be quiet, to sit and watch that child and just sit them down at the bench and back off and give them some space first and watch what they do and let them do what comes naturally, which is what we just talked about. That's play. All they want to do is sit at the piano and play. And so the parents will get frustrated and they will get bored. And so, and they're, we're seeing completely different things. So as I'm sitting there watching this child very, very carefully to see what they're doing, I see them doing interval training. They are learning the intervals, the spaces in between the notes. They're learning direction. I go that way, the notes go higher. I go down that direction, the notes go lower if we're on a piano. So these are all of the things that they are working through and trying to sort out through playing. I've seen them try to play chords. (laughs) (laughs) This is more advanced level stuff that they're figuring out just through playing, you know? And so I, I sat down and I, and eventually I started jumping in there and playing. And what that child was doing was mimicking what I was (laughs) doing. And they experimented with what, they were mimicking. And so in the next lesson, I had all of these ideas of things ready to teach them new ideas, new concepts. And so I sat down with a child, but before I did anything, I asked the child, do you want me to play with you? Or do you want me to just sit off to the side? And the five-year-old said, I want to play by myself. And so I said, okay. So I backed off. So all this time I'm explaining all of the things to the parents that this child is learning as the child is doing it. And then their eyes were just lighting up and they were, they were having trouble processing just how much their child was really learning through play to them. It just looked like, like noise. It just sounded like noise and gibberish fast forward a little bit. And, um, 
by the third lesson, the child was asking for a book. (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant. That is so brilliant. There's so many uh, aspects of what you just described that are so positive for that child's development. And it's so uh, wonderful to hear that you you tied all of that in there. Uh, you tied in the play and, and what play really is, is exploration, trial and error, experimentation. What does this do? What does that do? How they, they have an effect on it, the cause and effect. I, I made that happen. What if I do this? What, what am I going to make happen? You know, all of that that you brought in is so, so beautiful. Um, and then, and then, how you help the parents realize that's that's a huge piece of it. Um, there's there's a lot in there, as I said, that uh, you did so beautifully for those children. One of the things I heard you tie in earlier was this idea of safety and security, which sets up the environment for the child to feel free or the baby to feel free to to experiment and explore and learn. The brain doesn't doesn't learn when it is stressed and feeling threatened. It shuts down um, the higher functioning areas of the brain when it's when it's fearful. But if it's in a secure, safe, trusting situation, um, then it's open to learning. What are some of the differences between how moms and dads help their kids learn in the early years? I, I just recently had had seen an example at a, a swimming pool, and. Um, and there was a parent with, or two parents with, um, I'm going to guess he was maybe 18 months old or so. And he was toddling around the, the pool, not in the pool, outside of the pool, near the, the pool. And the uh, mom kept saying, oh, go watch him. Be careful. Now watch out. He's going to you know, fall. He's going to jump in. He's going <laughs> to. And the dad is saying, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. <laughs> Let him explore. Let him explore, you know. And so there's that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, then another family in that same situation, I was just observing all of this, um, had maybe a two-year-old and the mom's taking the baby in, or the, the two-year-old in real gently and which which I advocate for. She was introducing the child to the water and how does it feel? And she was seeing it from the baby's, the two-year-old's perspective and, and um, you know, how they were reacting to it and was, was it at a comfort level? So she was creating that, that secure, trusting relationship and experience. And then uh, the dad came over picked up the two-year-old and threw the, the two-year-old in the water. <laughs> and the two-year-old needed a, both of that, all of that. You know, they needed that secure introduction to it, but they loved the being thrown in the water. And the mom's you know, face was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Do girls and boys get different things from their father as far as what, they're, what they need? Typically, that's, that is is the case. So like that, those examples that I just gave you that, 
that father might be giving them more freedom and more risk-taking um, experiences um, and, you know, um, rough and tumble play is one um, that a lot of times it will typically be a dad that's going to do more of the rough and tumble play. And that is important. They, they need that. And especially boys need that. Um, I do presentations on the differences between male and female brain development. Um, and uh, boys typically do need more of that um, than, than the girls, but the girls do need it as well. And, and what a lot of people don't realize is that rough and tumble play is actually contributing to the higher functioning areas of the brain. That's what I was wondering. So for starters, there are some common things that both, both boys and girls need from their father, such as the rough and tumble. And the rough and tumble is essential to both boys and girls for the same reason. Right. There's a psychologist that asks, his name is Dr. Mark Brady, and he, um, he, asks, he says there's a question that we're all unconsciously asking. He calls, he calls it the big brain question. And he says, we're always unconsciously asking this question. And the question is, are you there for me? Oh, whoa. Yeah. So that's the bottom line is whether you're a mother or a father, that child wants to know, are, do you have my back? Are you there for me? Can I trust you? Oh, my goodness. And that is the safety net to everything in their life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's some of what happens during that rough and tumble play. You know, it's, it's, you're, you're having this big physical uh, interaction. And, you know, like, um, so say a child's running across the floor and the, and the dad's crawling after him growling or something like that. And, you know, and then tackles them that child needs to know that you're tackling me out of fun and respect and a, a, a relationship that we have together that I can mm -hmm. trust you. You're not going to hurt me. Um, this is just for fun. And how far can we go with it? And, you know, all of that's involved. Bringing this full circle back to where we started, the incarcerated fathers, this is where I'm just so excited about the work that you did with incarcerated fathers because you you were bringing that safety net into an environment that is set up to physically separate and alienate. Yeah. That is mind-blowing. <laughs> it is. It is. It's tough. Um, one last question, and that is, what are boys learning about girls or women from their fathers and what are girls learning about boys and men from their fathers <laughs> well that's a big question <laughs> but <laughs> but the the um the real um uh, core of it is something you mentioned when you were talking about the the piano lessons um when you sat down to play and then the child imitated you, that's the core, how mm. they're learning about the other gender through how 
that the mother treats the father and how the father treats the mother. They are taking it all in. They, children, well, all of us actually, but children's um, brains are being developed by what they observe. There, there's much more information that we gain from nonverbal communication than than any other communication. How can dads listening now learn more about what you're doing and gain resources to help them become better dads? Go to my website, <laughs> which is braininsightsonline.com. I, I provide information and ideas and tips and easy to implement into everyday life um, activity ringed books um, for different ages. And they're so simple to have right on hand. Dad, I mean, both parents, uh, moms and dads love them, but um, I've, I've heard a lot of how, how beneficial it is to dads. The dad's like, what can I do? What should I do? You know, so this provides those, those um, interaction ideas. Just to make it easier to find these resources, if you go to thefatherhoodchallenge.com, that's the fatherhoodchallenge.com. If you go to this episode, look right below the episode description. I'll have the links posted there as well. Deborah, as we close, what is your challenge to dads listening now who want to make a difference and have an impact based off of this conversation? Biggest thing is to do all they can to see things from their child's perspective. Mm. Um, to realize that they are there's so much they're learning that um, they're learning about the world, they're learning about themselves, they're learning about relationships, there's so much that's, that's going on for the for a child. And to realize that the brain takes about 25, well, 25 to 30 years to complete development. So having that realization creates more realistic expectations for, for your interactions with a child. So you, uh, you know, five-year-old is still learning so much. We can't assume that they can function and understand and rationalize and control their, all their big emotions because the part of their brain that handles all of that is very far from, from full development. So that realization you know, is, is extremely helpful that it's such a long way to go. I have a, a story of a mom that was, she was getting a bit impatient with, with her, I think he was about four years old, with her four-year-old doing, trying to do something. And she was getting a bit impatient. And the child turned to her and said, mom, I'm still learning. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> She said that brought her back. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Well, Deborah, I learned so much from you from the first time you came on the Fatherhood Challenge, and this time was no exception. So thank you so much for coming back on and, and educating all of us. Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm not aware, I'm not sure if you are aware that I have a free PDF on the brain basics. I would love to make that available to, to this audience. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you again.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fatherhood Challenge. If you would like to contact us, listen to other episodes, find any resource mentioned in this program, or find out more information about the Fatherhood Challenge, please visit thefatherhoodchallenge.com. That's thefatherhoodchallenge.com.